Exodus chapter 34, beginning at verse 1. Let's read the first four verses. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain that neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Throughout the book of Exodus, we've been following the progress of the nation Israel as they first came out of Egypt in the midst of all the plagues and judgments that God visited upon a rebellious Pharaoh and a tight-fisted, so to speak, Egypt. And how finally they were sent on their way with many gifts and support from the Egyptian people who were just glad to see them go. How they came out and they escaped the clutches of Pharaoh and came across the Red Sea and saw the Egyptian army destroyed. How they were provided for in the wilderness by the sending down of manna to eat and the miraculous provision of water every day for them. And we saw as well how they came to Mount Sinai and there as they gathered around Mount Sinai, that God spoke to them dramatically, the Ten Commandments, God speaking from heaven in an audible voice to the people as they assembled around the foot of the mountain. But then after that, we saw that when God brought Moses up on Mount Sinai to give him more instructions, more guidance from his law and his will for the nation, that the people sinned disgracefully by taking a golden calf and proclaiming it as an idol and as the God that brought them up out of Egypt. But now... God has been in a process of restoration for Israel that we've seen over several chapters. Moses interceded for them. The people repented and God brought a beautiful and a significant restoration. And in the midst of that, as Moses deals with God as a mediator for the people, he cries out with all of his heart, Lord, we saw this last time, show me your glory. And now God's going to reveal it to him in Exodus chapter 34. You see, he promised he would back in Exodus 33. He told Moses how he would protect him in the midst of that revelation of glory. But now in chapter 34, we're going to see God actually do it. So Moses had to leave behind the people at large. They were reserved down. They kept away. There was a barrier between them and the mountain. No man, not even animal, none of the livestock of Israel were allowed to wander up to Mount Sinai. Moses alone, because in a very real way, Moses was going up on that mountain to be a mediator between the people and God. You could see that just sort of physically, geographically, he was a mediator. Right there down at the foot. He's on the mountain. God's in heaven. He's standing in between. And they needed this mediator. That's why he says in verse three, no man shall come up with you. Let neither flocks nor herds feed on the mountain. And there he is as the mediator. I'm going to go on to verse five in just a moment. But doesn't it strike you as a beautiful picture of the work that Jesus would later come and do in a perfect sense? That which Moses did in an an imperfect and partial sense, Jesus came and did in a perfect sense. Jesus came and is the perfect mediator between God and man. But now, as Moses is up on Mount Sinai, ready to meet with God, 
verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord and the Lord passed before him. Ending there in the middle of verse 6. Aren't these staggering words? I have to say that even as a man who loves the Bible and studies the Bible diligently and prepares with effort to come and teach you on a Sunday, I come across passages that I read the words and I understand the words, but I don't really understand what it meant. It's just in this sense. So often I'll speak to you and I say, let, let the Bible be like a movie that runs in your heads where you can see what's being acted out right in front of you. I don't know what this looked like. I don't know what it looked like when it says in verse 5, now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. I do know that the cloud mentioned here appears many times in the scriptures. It's the cloud associated with the presence and the glory of God. The Hebrews call it the Shekinah of God. It's just something associated with his presence. And I don't know exactly what it would look like. I know that it's the same cloud that covered Mount Sinai when God spoke the Ten Commandments to the people. I know it's the same cloud that went with Israel by day as they went through the wilderness. I know it's the same cloud that stood by the tent of Moses when God met with Moses there at his tent. I know it's the same cloud that filled the temple of Solomon with glory so thick that the priests had to leave the temple because they just couldn't stand that manifestation of God's glory. I know it was the same cloud of glory, that same Shekinah that overshadowed Mary when she conceived with that holy child, Jesus. I know it was the same cloud of glory that was present when Jesus was transfigured before a few of his disciples and appeared in some glorious manifestation there with Moses and Elijah on top the Mount of Transfiguration. And I do know that it's the same Shekinah glory that will be present with Jesus at his return. But as for what it looked like, I don't know. I also don't know exactly what it means by this in verse 5, where it says, Now the Lord descended on the cloud and stood with him there. I don't think that it was a physical presence of God standing right there. But in some sense, God was there with Moses on Mount Sinai in surely what was one of the most beautiful and powerful and transcendent experiences with God in a life that had experienced many different things. In other words, had not God met with Moses before at the burning bush? But this seems to have a power and a connection and an intimacy that surpasses all of that. This was what Moses asked for when he said to God in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, please show me your glory. So right there when it says in verse 5 that the Lord descended on the cloud and stood with them there, verse 5 also says that he proclaimed the name of the Lord. In other words, the Lord said, that is, he proclaimed the name of the Lord. This means that God revealed his character to Moses. And in the specific way that he revealed his character, he did it with words. I mean, this is what it means to proclaim, is it not? To proclaim, to say something, is simply to cry out to say, this is what I am. These are the words that describe who I am. And friends, I just want you to consider for a moment that God revealed 
who he was, and God revealed his true nature in the midst of these words that he spoke to Moses. Friends, there was an experience that Moses had. And in the midst of this experience, God mediated himself to Moses in words. So when we read in the beginning of verse 6, and the Lord passed before him. You see, Moses did what God had told him to do. He positioned himself upon a rock, in the cleft of the rock. And as he did that, Moses saw behind the Lord. He saw as much as God's glory as he could possibly take in. Moses cried out to God, please show me your glory. And right there in those words, in the beginning of verse 6, where it says, and the Lord passed before him, he saw it. You know what I think is remarkable about this? What's remarkable is that this is the only description that we are given. That's it. The only description. Isn't it amazing? We're we're not told something like this. And the glory of the Lord passed before him and it was like electric rainbows everywhere. It was like lightning or golden dust filling the air or this or that. We're not told any of that. It's as if the moment was so holy and so powerful that it couldn't be described just by a few words. All that is said is that the Lord passed before him. And this is what Moses is asked for back in Exodus chapter 33. So now, what were the words that God spoke to Moses? Okay, get ready for this. Because as profound as the presence of God was, how he explained himself to Moses was still even more profound. The middle of verse 6. And God proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. They sent this. This is not only so astounding to me, it's so comforting to me. I have had, as I'm sure so many of you have had, I don't mean to separate myself from you in the sliders, but I'm just sharing what I hope is a common thing among many of us. I have had many deep and profound experiences with God. Now, I don't think that I ever have or I don't think that I ever will experience something as Moses experienced here. And I don't think I need to. Because what Moses experienced was important and glorious for him. But ladies and gentlemen, this is what I want you to see is that in the fullest expression of what God wanted to do, the words that God commanded Moses, the words that he proclaimed to him, the revelation of who God is by his words, I have that right in front of me here this morning, and so do you. That the same wonder of the God as he revealed himself to Moses, this is accessible by us. We may connect with him right here, right now. He proclaims it to Moses. He said it by words. He didn't want his revelation to Moses to be only in feeling and emotion, but he wanted to connect to the whole person. He wanted to connect to Moses, body, soul, and spirit in the entire person 
by speaking forth his word, just as God would speak forth his word to you today. And he starts by saying, did you see it there in the middle of verse six? The Lord, the Lord God. Now, this name, Yahweh, was the same name that God had revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was no new revelation of God. God was presenting himself to Moses as the immutable and eternal God. And he was opening a door to Moses and to all of us saying, You can know me. I'll reveal myself to you. Now, let me be very straightforward with you here, and I hope nobody takes this in a strange way. I don't have any doubt that there's at least a few people among us here this morning that this, frankly, does not interest you. And I don't say that to condemn you in the slightest. I can imagine how a person might think this way. They would say something along these lines. Listen, I'm very busy with my life. You should see my family and just trying to keep track of my kids and the home and my career and the bills and all the things and the activities and the events and everything that's in my life. I got enough stress. I got enough demands. I got enough going on in my life right now. To be honest, adding one more thing, knowing God on top of it. I don't think I have any room for that in my life right now. And so honestly, you feel like your life is full enough And the idea of you knowing God as he reveals himself to you in his word, just honestly saying, it just doesn't interest you that much. With all love and respect, I think you're missing out on the most glorious thing that God has made you to be. Because you weren't meant to live your life only at the level of a husband or a wife. Only at the level of a mother or a father. Only at the life as a career man or woman. Even though all those things are good and glorious in their due place. I want you to see that you have a higher calling than any of that. You are a man or a woman made in the image of God. And as someone made in God's image, created by him, you have a connection with God as exists between creator and creature. And what God wants you to have is the connection that exists between a person as God being their redeemer and him being the redeemed. God loves you. He wants to connect his life with your life. And he wants you to know him in response. There was a great English poet, a writer named Alexander Pope. He once wrote this, quote, Know then thyself. Presume not God to scan. The proper study of mankind is man. And with that, Alexander Pope, it's sort of a famous line in English literature. And with that, Pope was saying, listen, all your highfalutin thoughts about knowing God and this and that, forget about that. Set your sights lower. Just think I'm going to know myself. That's what I'm going to focus upon. I don't doubt that there's many lives here this morning that this is honestly how you live. You say, well, all that stuff about knowing God and who he is and his presence. All right, fine, good, whatever. But you know what's really important is for me to know me. I got to know myself. That's what's really important. I've thought about this idea of making knowing myself the center of my life. Personally, it makes me very depressed. 
If the key to my own self-awareness or whatever you want to call it, to my fulfillment, I, whatever words you want to put on it, is me knowing myself and who I am, that, that's pretty dark, isn't it? But I tell you, if the key is knowing God in all of his goodness and greatness, that brings great light to my life. Now, there is an even greater English author and speaker and writer named Charles Spurgeon. This is what he said to Alexander Pope's statement. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of the Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. Amen to that. You know, we do not live or should not live as the level of mere men and women. We live as God's children, those made in his image, those connected to him by both creation and redemption. And therefore, we have a special privilege and responsibility to know him. Can I say one more thing about that Spurgeon quote? That came from the very first published sermon of Charles Spurgeon when he was 20 years old. Reading that makes me feel like I've never done anything with my life. (laughs) All right, but now let's dig into it. We're still at the end part of verse 6. Let's see how God reveals himself. He begins by saying, the Lord, the Lord. But now you're ready. Here's the description. That was the name. Here's the description. Merciful and gracious. Doesn't that blow your mind? Isn't that a beautiful place for God to start? I mean, he could have started any number of places. How about this? Holy and just. Now, isn't it not true that God is holy and just? Absolutely it is true. We do not deny that, and God doesn't deny it in the slightest way. God is holy and just. But aren't you glad that he didn't begin there? That when he revealed himself to Moses in his character, in his person, when he invited Moses to say, know me, the first thing he said, Moses, what I want you to know about me is I am merciful and gracious. Now, merciful and gracious presupposes something, that you need mercy and that you need grace. That's me. I don't know about you, but that's me. And I suppose if somebody is really of the frame of mind, I don't need mercy from God. I'm just fine on my own. I don't need grace from God. I can handle it myself. Well, then you're really not interested in this God who reveals himself. But I'll tell you, I am vitally interested in him because I know that I need the mercy of God. I know that I need his grace. And for him to come out and pronounce that, it's like water to my soul. The same word is also used regarding Israel in Exodus in Psalm 78, verse 38, where God says this. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. He is full of compassion. His mercy is compassion in action, and we need it. But it doesn't end there. Look at it now, continuing on. Next phrase in verse 6. Long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. There's so much there. But let me just begin with this. Long-suffering. 
Do you know what that means? Well, the idea behind the word long-suffering means that God is slow to anger. He doesn't have a short fuse. He is patient with us. Now, we all know what it's like to deal with people who have short fuses, don't we? And I guess some of us are those people. But aren't you glad that God's not like that? Aren't you glad that God is so patient for you? Think about how much he puts up with from us. If God were not long-suffering, I don't think that there would be a single person in this room. We'd all be just burnt to ashes. But what does God say with the compassion of a parent for a child? He says, I'll show my mercy. I'll show my grace. Now, I do want to say this, and I hope this isn't too difficult a word for anybody here. He's slow to anger, but his anger will eventually come. He is slow to judgment, but his judgment will one day come. It is possible for someone to exhaust the patience of God. He is merciful, and he'll hold out his hand for mercy, but he will not hold it out forever. There will come a time where he says, well, that's enough. I've extended it to you for so long. But right now, let's just concentrate on the fact and rejoice that he is so slow to anger that he's so gracious and he's given us so much opportunity. And I think one of the chief marks of our own sinful nature is that we presume upon this. God has given you and I space today to repent before him. How dare we presume that we're going to have space to do that tomorrow? You may not. I may not. So instead, today we say, yes, Lord, with all the urgency that is, I don't want to test your patience one day longer. I get right with you today. Long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. You can't measure it just with a little bit, but it abounds. His goodness abounds. His truth abounds. It's given to us not merely in an adequate measure, but in an abounding measure. And then in verse 7, beginning there, it says, Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God shows his goodness towards us in his forgiving character he forgives and i love how he states it here does he only forgive iniquity no he also forgives transgressions does he only forgive iniquity and transgressions no he also forgives sins why does he repeat three words that pretty much mean the same thing just to get the point through my thick skull that he forgives sin he does there is not a person in this room who has sinned so bad or so deep that God cannot forgive you. No, the only thing that will make for non uh, for lack of forgiveness in your life is that you refuse to come to him for that forgiveness. But he's rich in it towards us. Uh, Psalm 86, verse 15, repeats this exact same revelation of God. It says this, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion, gracious and long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth. This is the God that we love and serve. And so God opens up the door to you and says, come, know me, serve me, love me, connect with me. But then he also says in verse 7, and I have to deal with this very directly, by no means clearing the guilty. Anytime people read those words that God is merciful, that God is gracious, that he's slow to anger, that he forgives sin of all kinds. It's very easy for people under those circumstances to presume upon the mercy of God. And to think, well, then he must have given up on this whole judgment thing. No, ladies and gentlemen, 
his loving, gracious, and giving character do not cancel out his righteousness and his justice, but because of the work of Jesus, the righteousness of God is satisfied at the cross, and the grace and the mercy of God are rightfully given to us in Jesus. If his love and his punishment are rejected, God will punish, and that punishment will have repercussions throughout the generations. And so God pleads with you, and he pleads with me, here's the mercy, come and receive it. Now notice this at verse 8, after this beautiful, powerful, amazing revelation of God. Now verse 8. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. What was Moses' first reaction at this revelation of God? He worshipped. Look at it right there in verse 8. So Moses made haste. He didn't delay. He, He was compelled right away to bow his head toward the earth, and he worshipped. I hope you know something of what this is like to worship God just for who he is. Now, listen, it's a wonderful thing to worship God for what he has done. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think it's fair for you to worship God because he created you, for you to worship God because he redeemed you, for you to worship God because he forgave your sins. And all that's wonderful. But please, friends, don't neglect to worship God simply for who he is. He's a great God, an amazing God. And you and I and all of us, we owe him our worship, whether or not we really feel like it or not. He's the God enthroned in heaven, full of glory and power. We owe him our worship. And Moses understood this instinctively. And so he bowed himself down. He worshiped. And then he says in verse nine, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us. Lord, you already promised that you would do this. Would you please fulfill your promise? I know we're a stiff necked people. I know we need your forgiveness. Please, Lord, would you forgive us? Would you do this? He's asking God to fulfill his word. And then please note now verse 10. And he said, behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. I find this absolutely fantastic that at the end of this all, at the end of this great revelation of God unto Moses, God says to Moses in response to his prayer, he says, I'll make a covenant with you and I'm going to lead you into the promised land. I'm going to do awesome things in front of you. I'm going to work on your behalf. I'm going to lead you in. I'm going to drive them out. And you know what I think is so amazing about all this? Did you notice about all of this in verses 10 and 11? It is all forward looking. Let's not forget that it really is just a matter of days before that, that Israel was dancing around a golden calf saying, this is the God that brought us up out of Egypt. And God was so offended at that. And God was so rightfully said, well, forget it. You know, this is it. This is the end of it all. 
But because Moses interceded and because the people prayed and the people repented, and most importantly, because God is rich in grace and mercy. Now, if you look at verses 10 and 11, it's like it never happened. Isn't that beautiful? I imagine people who feel so burdened by sin that they have committed. Maybe you committed it this week. Maybe you committed it last night. Maybe you committed it years ago, but it haunts your conscience and you wonder if you can really be forgiven. I'm here to tell you as a messenger of Jesus Christ to you, you can be forgiven and God will forget about your sins. If you come to what Jesus did for you on the cross and have them righteously judged by what Jesus did for you at the cross, you bring these things to the cross and they are forgiven. And essentially, as we see in verses 10, 11, God forgets about them. But there's some here. You're haunted by the conscience of your sin. You can't get away from it. And you wonder if you're really forgiven. And I'll tell you what, the devil himself doesn't help you with this, does he? Because the devil himself loves to act out that role as the accuser of the brethren and to whisper in your ear what a filthy, terrible sinner you are and how God is barely tolerating you. And even though you put your trust in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross, it's not enough. The devil whispers that in your ear and you feel disqualified. You feel separated. You still feel stained and filthy from that stain of sin. Listen, let me tell you, friend, you've been approaching it all wrong. You've been trying to debate this with the devil. He tells you how bad you are. And you can, well, really, maybe I don't think I'm all that bad. You try to explain to him. That's the wrong tactic entirely. Let me tell you exactly what to do next time the devil starts telling you what a terrible person you are. Agree with him. Matter of fact, remind him that there's some things he's forgetting. Oh, no, devil, you're absolutely correct. I am a terrible person. I'm a sinner. Matter of fact, my case is even worse than you describe. This is me. I'm a terrible case before God. I am a sinner. But devil, I want to remind you of something. That Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Isn't that beautiful just to know that? Just to rest in that. That there's no one who can outsin the grace and the goodness of God, but rather there is a sense in which God says in his word that when we bring these sins to his cross to have them judge righteously there in light of the work that Jesus did for us, that they're forgotten just as God seems to forget them in verses 10 and 11. This is some of the glory of knowing who God is. This relates to some of the power and the grace and the strength and the joy and the confidence that flows from a life that knows God. He's revealed himself to us. Let's connect with him now in prayer and then in a moment in genuine worship. Father, that is my prayer. We come to you, Lord, as real people, and we come to you as the real and living God, as you are revealed to us in this book that you have given to us by your Holy Spirit. And we come and we simply say with all our heart, Lord, would you please receive us as sinners? 
and we look to Jesus and who he is and what he did for us on the cross, that there he died as an innocent substitute for us who were guilty. And so we put our trust in him and what he did for us on the cross, not in ourselves, but in you. And we say, God, won't you reveal yourself to us more and more through your word, through genuine, real, personal experience, and let our lives know the impact, the grace, the strength, the confidence, the joy that comes from being a man or a woman who knows their God. Work that in our lives. And draw us now into worship before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.